Hello and welcome to Being Well. I'm Forrest Hansen. If you're new to the podcast, this is where we explore the practical science of lasting well-being. And if you've listened before, welcome back. Every one of us has needs. There's no avoiding them. When our needs aren't met, it's natural for us to feel stressed and worried, frustrated and hurt. But equally, sometimes it can be really uncomfortable to accept that we have needs in the first place. And it's common for many people to enter a cycle, consciously or otherwise, where they're both frustrated that their needs aren't being met and frustrated at themselves for having needs at all. Today, we're going to talk about needs, including, importantly, how we can identify our core needs, get better at accepting those needs, and maybe even find some healthy ways to meet the needs of other people. To help us do that, I'm joined today, as usual, by Dr. Rick Hansen. So, Dad, how are you doing today? I'm actually really good for us. Thanks for asking. And some adult children stop asking their parents how they're doing. So I have a regular opportunity. <laughs> That's very welcome. If you're a parent who's got adult kids, you know, you'll maybe get a chuckle out of this part. And also, yeah, that's pretty real. <laughs> pretty real. And also, the subject is enormously interesting mm-hmm. in part because it is grounded fundamentally in three and a half billion years of biological evolution of life on this planet. That's as real as it gets. The life and death struggles of all of our ancestors reaching back in an unbroken line of descent, of course, to the very earliest creatures who somehow managed to live to see the sunrise, to pass on genes that passed on genes that became eventually the blueprint for us today. That's the framework fundamentally for addressing our needs. And so to nest this discussion of needs that can seem very psychological and Mm -hmm. a little woo-woo maybe and superficial (laughs) in that profound life and death forging of our capabilities to meet needs for survival and passing on genes is wonderfully interesting. Yeah. So let's kind of talk about that and, and let's just start there. In our book that we wrote together, Resilient, we talked about there being three core needs, safety, satisfaction, and connection. You've kind of already done that in your little introduction there, but would you mind kind of explaining these briefly, including sort of where they come from? We've covered some of this material in the past, so we might do this kind of quickly. Great. Well, this notion of the three major needs having to do with safety, satisfaction, and connection as umbrella terms is a fundamental model really in biology and also in psychology. And to boil it down, if you think about yourself maybe 20,000 years ago, (laughs) scooting around the south of France during an ice age, trying to avoid saber-toothed tigers, you're a hunter-gatherer, you're trying to get a meal, or yourself a million years ago in a small hominid band who were able to make fire, and manufacture tools with brains roughly half to two-thirds of the size of you today. And even further back, think about yourself starting to crawl out of the primordial seas. As a little protozoa. Yeah, well, 350 million <laughs> years ago, you're kind of early lizard-like creature. You know, yeah, I, I hopscotched a little bit. Yeah. Oh, okay, good. Like a little froggy. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, what do you got to do? What do you got to do? What do you need? Well, number one, don't get eaten. Don't die today. Straight up. That's a big one. Number two, get a meal, get fed, Mm -hmm. eat something today. Okay. So now we're we're moving into satisfaction. Satisfaction, yeah. And then third, if you can, procreate. Yeah. Pass on your genes. Or, you know, if we were to fast forward it to Stone Age humans or us today, basically don't die today, get fed today, get a hug today. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That kind of summarizes our needs. And if we don't meet our needs fundamentally, especially biologically, for a protracted period of time, you know what happens, Forrest? I I have some guesses. You die. Yeah, okay. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So it can get very, very real. Yeah, for sure. So maybe bringing it into people's experience these days, one of the reasons that the pandemic and all of its associated challenges has been so tough for so many people is that in a manner it's attacked each of those core needs. It's attacked our need for safety because, well, it's a pandemic, it's a deadly virus. It's attacked our need for satisfaction because we can't get as many of the things that we used to get. And it's certainly attacked our need for connection where we're more disconnected from people, 
we're more isolated, we feel more separated, we're doing this through Zoom rather than doing it in person, you know, whatever your personal example is. The ultimate anchor for meeting needs is raw physical survival. Hmm. So at the ultimate point, we're potentially dealing with hazards or situations that could be lethal in terms of the physical body continuing. Think of that as the most root challenge to the need for safety. And we can also be in situations where we starve to death. We cannot access food. A lot of hunter-gatherers and even agrarians, even fairly recently, face starvation. And even in America today, there are millions of people who day-to-day live with what's called food insecurity. And it's estimated loosely that about a billion people worldwide go to bed hungry every night. And so this is kind of real too. Okay, that's an example in which the lack of satisfaction, in a sense, is anchored physically. And we can even say it as well socially. There's research that shows that certainly in early childhood, if infants, toddlers who are put into really ugly situations because they're given up for adoption and then they're just languishing in some hospital and nobody touches them for long periods of time or prematurely born infants who are not touched, that too can pose a lethal threat. But much of the time, especially in modern developing countries, challenges to the sense of safety tend to be more psychological, indicated by feelings of anxiety or anger or helplessness. Those are three big flags. Challenges to the need for satisfaction that could have to do with accomplishing things or feeling successful or making more money, being able to access pleasure of different kinds. Well, impediments to the meeting of needs for satisfaction are marked by feelings of disappointment, loss, frustration, or immobilization, or marked by drivenness to extreme and addictions. And last, issues related to meeting our needs for safety in the modern world are marked by things like insecure attachment, which we've talked a lot about and you've really built out marvelously for us in your notes Mm -hmm. for people who are patrons of this podcast. So that's a plug to become a patron of this podcast (laughs) if you're not already, because you will get access to an incredible wealth of material. Anyway. Thanks um, for the plug, Dad. I appreciate it. (laughs) And so with regard to relationships, you know, challenges to safety that are not life and death necessarily, it can involve things like feeling insecurely attached growing up Mm, or as an mm -hmm. adult carrying with you internalized feelings grounded in experiences with other people of inadequacy, being less than others, or needing to continually impress them each day to somehow be allowed to maintain your seat at the head table there. And also challenges to connection are marked as well by, you know, resentments, vengeful fantasies, grievances, uh, ill will, fantasies of violence and revenge. You know, these are all issues there. Okay. So that kind of might generalize it more for people, especially when we take it out of life and death survival back in the Stone Age. So, okay, with all of that as kind of our base layer, we all have needs, we have these core needs, and we need to do things in our life to try to meet these needs in order to be happy. Even so, for many people, it can feel really embarrassing or vulnerable or uncomfortable or whatever to admit that we have needs. And to kind of make this real, I'd love to use you as an example here, much as you have used me as an example on the podcast in the past. I know, I've appreciated for us <laughs> how you've been willing to give up your body for science. Oh, thank you. Periodically I appreciate with me on this podcast. Yeah, I, I'm happy to be disclosing. We're going to kind of flip the lens here on you a little bit. Oh. Uh, so I just want to kind of start by asking you, are there times in the past where you've personally struggled to kind of come to terms with a certain need and Mm -hmm. what was that need and how did you kind of engage in your process there? Yeah. Well, for me, in terms of physical survival, I've definitely had experiences there. Uh, Three in particular, I nearly died and somehow I came through it. Two while rock climbing, (laughs) one while nearly drowning in kelp when I was 16. I've also grappled with, I would say, low-grade background anxiety. And here's where it gets kind of interesting and useful for people. A lot of that anxiety was for me related socially. I grew up in a middle, middle class environment. I did not have food insecurity. I was not living in a war zone or a refugee camp. I wasn't badly bullied. I was not beaten by my parents. So I didn't need to worry about that. Nor was I grappling with a major challenge to safety in the form of health issues, chronic illness or disability, 
those also really challenge our, our need for safety. Nor was I caught up in a situation in which I was helpless in some major regard. So I didn't have those, but the sense of lack of safety and anxiety and honestly, the underlying sense of mistreatment that would provoke anger was related to my parents socially, interpersonally, and then also related to my peers as a kid growing up, as a shy, dorky, very lonely kid. My parents were loving and decent, intact family, relatively normal range situation, which in a funny kind of way can illustrate that even in nice families, <laughs> a lot of stuff can happen. Even things that you're not even aware of as a parent. Uh, my parents were probably quite unaware of a lot of the unhappiness that was brewing and stewing inside me. And it was kind of a double whammy. I was afraid of revealing it. And when I did reveal it in different ways, my parents, by their nature and having to do partly by growing up in tough conditions themselves during the depression, were not very good at empathy. Mm -hmm. So we have needs that are social needs that even though they're not going to kill you, the lack of meeting those needs can make you miserable and can lead you to do other things that may eventually cascade into things that kill you, mm -hmm. such as not adopting good healthcare practices. As a quick sidebar, there's a lot of research that shows that when people feel like they're in good, healthy relationships, they tend to do much better in terms of health outcomes, including longevity. So it can have a direct payoff. But when I was younger, it wasn't a matter of survival, but boy, was I miserable. And, and we are designed as the most social species on the planet, partly because strong attachment relationships and hunter-gatherer bands, certainly in childhood and even in adulthood as well, promote physical survival. So we carry that legacy with us today. We are designed to want to be important to other people. Mm -hmm. We are designed to compare ourselves to others. We're designed to do that. We're designed to have experiences of inadequacy and shame if we feel like we're falling short because they tend to motivate us to do those things that increase the odds of passing on genes that pass on genes. We're designed to long for love. We're designed to long to be special in the mind, in the heart of another person. And when these biologically, in the hot forge of evolution over millions of generations, when these needs don't feel met, for you, whoever you are, not met enough for you, boom, warning signals start erupting inside oneself that translate as pain, emotional pain, mm -hmm. much as physical pain is a warning signal that you're getting into trouble by, you know, leaving your hand on the stove. This is emotional pain, which draws upon, as you know, Forrest, many of the same systems in your brain that make us feel physical pain, which is a way of understanding how piercing and penetrating the sense of hurt or loneliness or worthlessness can be in terms of what people actually experience when they don't feel their needs are met. So to make this really kind of granular and experiential for people, was there a time where you felt uncomfortable that you had a certain kind of need? Essentially, I want to ask, like, how do you relate to the experience of being quote-unquote, needy, which is sort of a bad word that we've created inside of our culture when the truth is, as you're saying, we all have needs. It's natural to have them, and there's nothing that's inherently wrong with having them in the first place. But it's common for people to be made to feel wrong for having different kinds of needs. So to tell a story I, I've not told publicly, I think, ever, I was about 23, and I was working in a school setting, private school setting, independent school setting. It was really neat. And to kind of add to the impact of the story, I was working for a major mentor of mine that I encountered through college and who had founded this school. So he was someone I looked up to and I certainly wanted to impress mm -hmm. and be thought well of by him. Yeah. And that kind of normal range desire as a 23-year-old, let's say, was then massively turbocharged by this underlying feeling of inadequacy, of a major deficit inside that we develop when needs are experienced as unmet. In this case, my needs over the 23 previous years to feel cared about and included and wanted and prized and so forth. Desired, yeah. 
And then mm-hmm. also there were two other people who were the kind of senior teachers. They were the main teachers in this independent school. Very experienced people, very competent, very careful. They happened to be a couple. I looked up to them as well. They were maybe 10, probably 15 or 20 years older than I was. They, they ran the place and so on. And I got brought in as someone who knew something at that point about human potential, because I'd been actually teaching workshops by that point and had something to offer about that. So in some ways I was kind of a peer, but in a lot of ways, I was definitely the new kid. And so I remember the moment where we were in a hot tub together. This is the seventies. <laughs> Very seventies. Okay. And we were all fairly used to being somewhat confrontational for the sake of the greater good, but definitely making it real with people. And suddenly I found myself in a situation in which my mentor was sort of watching without doing anything while the male teacher started really criticizing me and kind of the his his co-teacher happened to be his wife was really kind of chiming into it and i was really stunned i had no idea they felt that way they didn't i got a sense they didn't like me at all they didn't really appreciate me and here i am being nailed by them and so i started to speak in response when they were done. And my initial response was sort of cool and armored, Mm. defended Mm -hmm. and, you know, that sort of surface brittle of, well, hyper-rational because rationality was my go-to when I was uncomfortable because I had developed it and so on, intellect. And then I just burst into tears, which I didn't do very much of really. And I just started crying and crying. And the crying was maybe 5% related to what was happening in the moment and 95%, we've talked about the bucket of tears. Yeah. <laughs> I, was, yeah. I was emptying it a lot more than a teaspoonful. <laughs> that was, that was a, ladle after ladle, <laughs> that old bucket of tears I'd acquired. And when I finally started speaking, what I was saying that was in a way one of the hardest things to say, and you can feel the courage in yourself as you help yourself say the really hard things. And there's something noble in it, in my view. You just are, you're just going to say it. You're almost, you're at your limit. You don't know what else to do. You're at your wit's end. You, there's nothing else to do but to tell the bare naked truth, naked in more way than one. And I just started saying, well, I, I just want you to like me. I want you to love me. Mm. Right? That was so hard to say. It was so scary to right there in that moment, acknowledge that need normal need, right? But I had acted really cool. I had not wanted to admit I needed it. I didn't want to admit that underneath my scabs were still a lot of molten pus <laughs> from many, many, many years that was kind of scary and smelly when the, when the boil was lanced. And what happened though, in the crying and the speaking through the tears and the acknowledging in this very bare way was a tremendous healing for me Mm. and release there. And also these other people who thought that I felt superior to them and because I was sort of reserved and, you know, controlled and analytical and right a fair amount of the time, they softened themselves as they realized that, you know, I too, common humanity, I too suffered, I too was scared, I too was afraid. I was afraid of them. I wanted things from them that I was embarrassed to admit simply that they would like me and in certain ways love me as well. Mm. So that was that was quite a dramatic episode and it was a real teaching there. And part of it was me communicating to my boss, my mentor, this older man that I wanted to be, you know, approved of. I wanted to impress him. Supported. Yeah. You know, I wanted him to value me as well. And to express that more. You know, I felt undersupported by him, frankly, and kind of thrown to the wolves a little bit yeah. with these other people, partly because he didn't really know what to do. Sometimes other people don't meet our needs because they're mean and horrible, but very often they're just unwitting or they're not willing to call themselves to come through for us in ways that actually they could. Mm-hmm. And maybe they're more inclined to when we really talk about it with them. Yeah. I mean, I think there are so many great themes in that story, and it's a lovely story. A few that jump out to me immediately that I think people listening might find generalizable are first, the importance of just vulnerability and acceptance here. 
self-acceptance, being open to expressing yourself vulnerably, and being vulnerable inside of your own process to yourself. You made a very dramatic and public admission in, in a manner of speaking. I don't mean dramatic in a negatively valenced way, just like that's it's a big story. It's a big outwardly expressive story. But often when we confess our needs, doing it to someone else can be helpful, including to a clinician, a therapist, whatever. But often doing it to ourselves is kind of the most important part. Just admitting internally, wow, this is a thing that actually is really important to me. And that can be in some ways the most vulnerable step of all. And we have this myth inside of the culture of sort of rugged individualism. It's like a very American perspective of I'm just going to take care of myself and damn the torpedoes and the whole thing. But the reality is that none of us can survive entirely on our own, including people who think that they can survive entirely on their own. They can't do it either. So we're all dependent in some cells, on ourselves, on other people, whatever. And so it's natural to have needs that involve others. And then we can get into like how to express those skillfully and where are the boundaries for needs that are appropriate versus inappropriate. Okay, that's all good. But like we got them. So we have to come to terms to them on some level. And one of the things that to me is really present in that story is this idea of like coming to peace with our vulnerabilities and accepting things that might be perceived as a vulnerability. In your case, your desire for connection and attachment and support and love and witnessing and all of that good stuff. Mm -hmm. And I think that the more that we kind of like own those vulnerabilities, the stronger that we actually become, the more resilient that we actually become because we start to be able to communicate around what other people can actually do to support us and around what we can do to support ourselves because it's pretty common for us to have behaviors that aren't necessarily in our best interest. So that, that's kind of what I like here and all of that. Is there anything you'd like to kind of comment on there? I thought there's a lovely way of framing it. And mm. you're exactly right. Like you might have heard in the background, our cat, mm. family cat, Pistachio, <laughs> to give full credit. Uh, <laughs> our daughter, Laurel, named him that because he has very green mm -hmm. pistachio colored mm -hmm. eyes in part, I think. In any case, a moment ago, he was signaling. He was meow, meow. He's very social and... He's basically saying, hey, where is everybody? Partly because Laurel is on a train right now to New York City, uh, as it turns out. So he's kind of lonely. He's expressing his need in a very, nothing about cats. We diverged from cats and evolution. I don't know exactly. Long time ago. Probably <laughs> 100 million, give or take a few dozen million years ago-ish. But still, they, like us, are signaling their needs. And then I think about, for example, a need, you know, we have Maslow's hierarchy, which maybe we could give a quick nod in that direction. So think about fundamental survival needs. Mm -hmm. And there's some question about which needs are prior to which. And it's really, I just think of them as sort of all together now, right? So we have survival. Then mm -hmm. there are needs for a basic sense of belonging, that we're related to others in positive ways. So right there, you think about the desires, the needs for people to be in a relationship. Many, many people would like to be in a good primary romantic relationship, and they're not. Or many people would like a relationship that's a lot better than what it is. You know, yeah, it's continuing, but it's sort of a B minus, C minus sort of a relationship. And then the need for influence, power. We can make things happen. We have agency. We have efficacy, whether it's in the relational field or in our lives or in our world, that we have some kind of capacity to do that. And then you can think about a need for prestige, for standing, for where you are in the, in the primate band, you know. And then those are the primary so-called deficiency needs in Maslow's hierarchy that have to do with something missing, something unmet. And then we have this last need that's very interesting that he calls out for self-actualization. Yeah. To really, yeah, use your capacities, use your abilities, express your talents. I think of the metaphor of being a thoroughbred trapped to a plow. Mm. Yeah, you can go up and down the furrows and sometimes you have a life that you don't have the privilege of escaping that plow for one reason or another. You need to keep going up and down the furrows. But still, there's a need in a person to use all of their abilities and break free of that plow and run at full speed and jump as high as you possibly can. Also, there's, I think at, at a certain level, there's a need to feel, maybe under the heading of actualizing yourself, the last one, that you're contributing. Mm. I think about the position of adolescents in our culture, for example, who 
a generation or two ago, let alone a thousand years ago, let alone a hundred thousand years ago, were vitally important members of the family and the tribe. Yeah. And they had a real role. Mm -hmm. They really contributed. They they helped and they were intimately involved in the world of adults so they could see the rewards of virtuous conduct of one kind or another, including just good old-fashioned grittiness and moxie. And they could see the the costs of being a, of goofing around or being too angry or too violent or too alcoholic. And they could see that very directly. But now we take adolescents and we put them into situations where they can't make meaningful contributions, basically. They get to do, you know, mm-hmm, maybe a, mm-hmm. an hour a month of some community service project, big whoop, or for a day they- Yeah, some people have a job in high school or whatever, but- Yeah, but it's pretty rare. But your your overall point is very well taken, where in general- Thwarted contribution. Yeah, thwarted contribution. Like we've created a structure where- their job is to kind of be a witnesser and work on themselves and learn some stuff, but there's that sense of contribution might not be present, which I think is really important. Yeah, or even just think about someone you want to give your love to. Mm. You know, that's a that's a longing in people. Yeah. Often, that's one of the the real pangs of being alone is that it's not just that you would like to be loved. Maybe it's even more fundamental. There's you'd like to give mm. your love mm-hmm. to someone. So these, I want to acknowledge these as as needs as well. Yeah, I think that's a great point. And inside of that, you're highlighting all of these different very specific needs that different people might have. And inside of the story you told, you named specific needs that you had, which are, you know, whether it's genetically or culturally or whatever, are ones I share. Where like my specific vulnerabilities, my specific needs largely come down to connection and self-actualization. Like those are the two big questions mm. that kind of are present in my life in a, yeah. in a consistent way, sort of regardless of the space that I happen to be in, those two needs keep on coming up. The need to be viewed as, as capable or to be liked by people or whatever alongside this kind of other vague need that floats in the cosmos around me of like, huh, what are you going to do with your life? Are you doing enough? Are you really fulfilling your potential? Okay, those are my two, and I'm pretty clear that those are my two. How could somebody go through a process of figuring out what their two are? And to many people, this might be really intuitive and like you're like, oh yeah, I am the connection person or I am the satisfaction person, whatever. But sometimes it's actually kind of hard to know what our really deep needs are that are kind of hiding underneath all of these surface needs. Right, well, first entering into that question to underline what I was just sort of talking about, it's really helpful to just admit, it's sort of like, you know, lay down your armor, lay down your guard and just acknowledge, yo, I'm human. I got a human body. It has major needs. It's vulnerable and it depends on all kinds of sources of provision mm-hmm. of those needs, mm-hmm. including a lot of other people. Yeah, There are things I can do for myself to meet my needs better over time. Maybe we'll talk about that. But that's only effective if I'm doing things to meet my needs in environments and in settings and in relationships that are fertile with provision. So that through making efforts, I can actually grow the good or get the thing, whatever. But if it ain't out there in the first place, I'm not gonna be able to meet my needs. So we're we're fundamentally profoundly mm-hmm. dependent. And you've talked a lot for us about this sort of myth of rugged individualism, which is really yeah. preeminent in, in American culture, even compared to other Western countries like in Europe, and certainly in comparison to you know other cultures, particularly Eastern cultures around the world. And no, sorry, that's grandiose, that's arrogant. You are dependent. Why not admit it? You do have needs, and then you can get on with things, part one. Part two, when you look at your needs, I think it's important to appreciate, as you and I are, it's sort of like subtweeting, you know, it's the subtext of what we're saying here, <laughs> that there's the element of both privilege and good fortune. Yeah. Because of the combination of privilege and good fortune in my childhood, I didn't really have to worry about famine or starvation. There was no food insecurity. There were a lot of TV dinners. Money was tight. My parents were careful, but we always knew we could eat. And similarly, you, you, you're not anxious about food. You're not anxious about being physically assaulted. Yeah, You're totally. a tall mm-hmm. guy. Even when you're walking yeah. down a dark street, you live in a fairly safe city, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. So I think it's kind of, it's appropriate 
and appropriately humble and grateful, which can then move us to helping others acquire the life circumstances. Yeah, it's a great point. Yeah, totally. Your privilege and good fortune. Where they can consider these more high-minded needs that we're kind of engaging with here. Absolutely, yeah. That's exactly right. So I want to, that said, here's some giveaways. Think about sort of major emotional bands. What's sort of a recurring theme for you, a primary matter? Is it in the spectrum of anxiety, anger, or helplessness? That tends to point you in the direction of safety. Mm, mm-hmm. Now, maybe it's anxiety, anger, and helplessness in your relationships. So now you're dealing with a twofer. But the bottom line, what's present for you, what's foregrounded in, in your experience, and what's the smell of your suffering? What's the particular aroma of your suffering? You know, it's sort of mm, saturated mm-hmm. with anxiety, anger, and or, and or helplessness. That's a clue to safety. Yep. To say it kind of poetically, like the tone of your pain is a really good indicator of where your needs are. Yes, exactly. Like what are the common pain points for you? Like yeah. when you enter into a group, particularly socially, and you leave that group at the end of the night, and you have something in your mind where you're like, ah, this thing just didn't go the way that I wanted to. What is the thing that keeps on coming up for you almost irrespective of group? And most of us have one. Yeah, that's that's really well said. Now, me, for us, if we could do this in real time. Oh, sure, yeah. I, I really like the phrase, the smell of your suffering. Uh, <laughs> you know, because there's alliteration. It's kind sure, of, yeah. but, but here's the thing. When you go, when you went to that little you know, editing, as it were, of that mm-hmm. in poetic, the tone of your pain, yeah, which is wonderful mm-hmm. in its own right. That said, there was a momentary hitch in me mm. about my need for approval and agreement from you, oh. right? And so then, and because I'm, you know, a mindful guy, and you know, sure, yay, sure. mindfulness, people should go listen to those podcast episodes and read your notes <laughs> for the patrons. But anyway, about that. I'm aware of that just arising in real time for me on a time clock of, you know, half mm, seconds, mm-hmm. quarter seconds, because things happen really fast in the brain. I could feel that little harumph inside me. And then what's really interesting is that because with you in particular, and generally for myself, mm-hmm. I've pretty well developed internalization a thousand times over, 10,000 times over internalization of the felt sense of the need for Social supplies, the need to be important, the need to be right, the need to be knowledgeable, whatever. That need's been largely met. So when there's this little, what, (laughs) going on with you, Mm -hmm. it doesn't land on a big pile of firecrackers that have been accumulated over the years. That pile's been mostly swept away by me, nor does it land on a big empty space inside in which I feel insufficiently acknowledged, you know, by you or by people in general. So because I've built up that kind of robust equanimity, the felt sense, you know, resources inside, because I'm resilient in that way, it was merely a momentarily twitch. It was just a momentary twitch that then I could be aware of and think to myself, I'll turn this into a little bit of a story, right? And then as a result, (laughs) Forrest will think, dude is awesome. Wow, my dad is so smart. Yeah, no. And 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 I think maybe even like drilling into that story because it's a good story. It's a great example of how communication can alleviate a lot of connection and satisfaction needs. That's right. Because that's an expression that most people wouldn't make, right? Like most people, you have a moment in a group with somebody else and something goes sideways and you never talk about it. Yep. And so you never have an opportunity to process the experience, which is okay. Like we have a culture where it's not always appropriate to be like, hey, that bugged me every single time that something bugs you, you know? Yeah. Like that's that's not the, the way that we do interactions in our culture. But at the same time, most of what you were naming there came essentially from me kind of having a moment of not really like blanking out during the conversation, but just having like a phrase that arose in my mind where I was like, oh, this sounds kind of lovely. Maybe I should say this. You know, it wasn't about subsuming your phrasing of it. It was just about kind of volunteering my own. And now that we have an opportunity to actually say that, you, Rick, can have an experience of like, oh yeah, it wasn't about me being wrong. He was just in his own weird process with it. And all of a sudden that need can be kind of like addressed in a more healthy way. So anyways, just kind of like modeling some process there. I I think it's a good example of how communication can get around some of these issues. 
Exactly right. And so as a result, in real time, you know, I'm having warm feelings for you. And I think that if we can highlight two key themes out of this, one, it's really useful to develop skills, capabilities, attitudes, you know, the somatic markers, the felt sense in the body, whatever it might be that enables you to meet your needs. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. you and I, partly in a relationship with each other and then also with other people, we have certain social skills. There's a certain social intelligence that enables us to get back into rapport with each other and to kind of manage and repair. People are endlessly repairing little misunderstandings in relationships. So right here we can flag in terms of a person's needs, in this case, social needs marked by a little bit of anxiety that, gets, that stirs up, at least in me, yeah. about that sense of misattunements mm -hmm. there with you. Mm -hmm. Focusing on what skills, what capabilities, what attitudes, what sort of underlying emotional qualities, what moods are the tools, are the muscles, are the strengths mm. that enable you mm -hmm. to meet your needs. Mm -hmm. And the other thing it flags is to repeatedly internalize again and again and again the felt sense of needs met. Mm. Because as you internalize that felt sense, take in the good, as we talk about, you gradually build up this inner shock absorber, this inner reservoir of needs very well met so that when inevitably, this is life, right? This is samsara, not nirvana. You know, in this life when people are not perfect partners, you know, you whatever's happening is landing on that big reservoir already. So those are two big flags there. Yeah. Grow the strengths that help you to meet your needs. And when your needs are met, internalize the experiences. And each of those will make you more resilient. Maybe doing a little tiny backtrack to like figuring out what those needs might be. One thing that's been really helpful for me is kind of running little experiments. And thankfully, I have a group of friends that are accommodating around this sort of thing, and not everyone does. But uh, just doing little moments where you try to be kind of a different kind of way in a group of people mm. if you have a missed need for connection. Or you have a moment where you feel like you can really gin up like the gumption and the bravery and so on to make a bid with somebody and being okay with it if that bid is not met exactly the way that you want it to be, but just like see what that feels like. We're running little experiments around satisfaction, like trying on different kinds of processes through your day, different schedules, different ways of being, different ways of eating, different ways of doing, you know, like whatever. And sometimes through these little kind of social experiments that you run, you can actually really get good identification of what your underlying needs might be. Another good process around it is like meditation and journaling, things that allow you to be introspective, where you reflect on the kind of movie that is your life, the movie of past interactions with people. And you can start seeing if there are certain themes that kind of come up again and again and again in these interactions, whether they're behavioral, what Freud called like the repetition compulsion, the, the impulse to just repeat the same scenarios over and over again, or if they're a little deeper and more fundamental and more oriented around like, huh, there's something I want out of this that I'm really just not getting. And here's what it is. And hey, let's start brainstorming some ways that maybe I could start to get more of that in the future. Does that sound good to you, Dad? Oh, it sounds great. And it sounds like you should get that therapist license, kiddo, I, which is something, of course, I'm <laughs> bugging you about routinely. And I was glad that you were drinking water right then and there. So you like started spewing. <laughs> it was really good. <laughs> we're recording the visual you heard here, it right? high-pitched uh, laugh there. That was me <laughs> laughing with a mouthful of water and trying not to lose all of it over my keyboard. So, okay. All right. Well, can so I build on what this... you said? Let me build yeah, yeah, on please That's go ahead. Good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So when you think of, for example, the need for satisfaction, which it's really unmet needs there are often marked by things like frustration, disappointment, a sense of loss. Depression or depressed mood actually tracks the lack of meeting of all the three needs. For example, trauma, which is a catastrophic mm -hmm. loss mm -hmm. of safety, whatever else might be happening there, tends to be depressing. Pain, physical pain, is a major marker of a challenge to safety. Chronic physical pain really wears down mood. Okay. Also, when we're frustrated in goal attainment, when we're thwarted again and again, or we have a loss of major sources of reward, like we get fired from a job or bringing in the relationship field again, we get abandoned by someone, or they just leave us, they dump us, or we find that they've cheated on us, and that's the end of that relationship. That too lowers our mood, makes us feel melancholy and blue, even depressed. 
And then, of course, socially, when people are exiled or pushed out of the group or devalued in some way, that tends to also really, really lower mood. So depressed mood can be a marker of issues in any one of the systems, but it's definitely a marker of something important to pay attention to, including chronic low-grade depression, which is some people say in mental health, you know, chronic low-grade dysthymic disorder is roughly as ubiquitous. It's as common as the cold, except colds are episodic. They come and they go, but low-grade background melancholy, dysthymic disorder tends to stay with you. Mm-hmm. So that's one. Two, in terms of identifying needs, besides this framework that we've given, you might ask yourself, what would have made all the difference back then? Now, maybe back then was last month at work or last year in a relationship or back then in high school or early childhood. What would have really made a difference there? And often you'll have an intuition of what really would have made a difference or what you sure wish had happened or you could see happening for other people alongside you, kids you went to school with and you long for it for yourself. What need would that have met? If, for example, you had, let's say in my case, been older and more athletic for my age and not routinely picked last for sports teams Mm, during mm -hmm. PE class in fourth grade, say, well, what need would that have met? Well, needs to feel vital and potent and strong, needs to feel wanted by other people, needs to feel that in my version of gender socialization, which I was okay, I was doing okay in that regard instead of feeling very wimpy and you know unmanly and kind of worthless for all kinds of reasons. So thinking about what would have made all the difference in the world can identify a need, which can then take you into the present. Mm-hmm. How can you get that or some aspect of that today? Mm. Another thing that can really highlight what's an unmet need is what's this chronic longing in your heart that Maybe you've pushed to the background. Maybe you do things to numb it out, like overeat or overdrink or oversmoke. But is there a chronic longing in your heart? That. And then last, going to self-actualization, are there major capabilities that you have that are untapped? Like for me as a psychotherapist, there's a certain quality of intellectual firepower and plus enthusiasm, plus moving into playful teaching it's not that appropriate <laughs> when you're sitting across from someone for their 50 minutes, talking with them and really listening to them about their situation. So for me, it was really important um, to be able to become like a teacher, a workshop leader, and to find ways to express myself through online self-help programs as well, alongside what was also expressed to me, which is a real capacity for an interest in extremely deep listening to another person and and a real quality of attunement to them and an offering of what might be helpful in the context of that deep, deep, deep rapport. But if there is something in you that wants to run or wants to be expressed, or maybe you were able to do it many, many years ago as a teenager or in that wonderful summer job you had, or when you were a camp counselor, or in that one memorable conversation with that stranger on a train that you've never forgotten about since, um, you know, listen to that as well. That, that unfulfilled capacity or that unfulfilled form of contribution, that too could be an unmet need. Yeah, I think that's a great summary and kind of bringing together of a lot of the stuff that we've talked about so far around identifying what your needs might be and some ways to meet them. To kind of just reinforce something that we've been saying so far, we wrote a whole book on resilience. And the bottom line of becoming resilient is actually pretty straightforward. And to me, it gets back to meeting our needs, where we don't find resilience by ignoring our needs or denying our needs or pretending our needs aren't there. There isn't a path to resilience that involves like circumventing needs. But the more resilient that we become, the less impacted we are by our external circumstances. And a lot of that resilience is found in being internally resourced, right? And we become internally resourced through repeatedly having experiences that our needs are met And then that we take in those experiences effectively to then build up the resources that we have inside so that we can do more stuff out in the world. And it's this very self-reinforcing process. And again, it it all gets back to feeling like we have needs and we can meet them effectively. And a lot of the time when we feel kind of ineffective out in the world or when we feel unhappy or unhealthy out in the world, 
it's because we feel like we can't meet the needs that really matter to us. And that for me, I think just like encapsulates the experience of so many people that they feel like they have these needs, but they just can't quite meet them and they don't really know how. But the first step on all of that is like accepting that the needs are present, identifying what the needs might be, and then basically creating a plan of some kind. What are you going to do about meeting those needs in your life? So moving on from this a little bit toward the final thing that I want to talk about today, we have needs, but guess what? Other people have needs too. No. Yeah, no. Oh, God. <laughs> and so for some of those other people, not all other people, let's be clear, but for some of those other people, friends, family members, romantic partners, significant people in your life, it can be both fulfilling and maybe even on some level kind of moral, if you want to put that spin on it, to help them meet their needs, or at least to get comfortable with the fact that they do have needs. So in your longtime experience as a therapist, maybe particularly working with couples, what are some of the things that you've seen can support people in helping them support other people and helping them help other people meet their needs? So we're focusing here now on responding to the needs of others that are directed at oneself. Yeah, often. And alongside that can also sometimes be helping another person meet their needs through helping their world to get better, or even for those who are receptive, helping other people to become more skillful inside themselves, to develop inner capabilities that they draw upon for the meeting of their needs. Okay. Mostly I'm going to focus now, though, as you kind of set it up here, what do you do when you're on the receiving end of another person's need? And probably it hasn't been expressed super well, and it may be coming right at you with some top spin because they're mad at you for not meeting their need, or they're blaming you because their need is unmet, when in fact, it's really not your fault that their need is unmet, but you're implicated in some way. First of all, I think it's very helpful to be mindful of what it feels like to be with the needs of others. And I think for many people, maybe the majority of people, the natural reaction initially is to push that away because it comes at us as an influence move. It comes at us as a demand, even if it's a request, they want something from us. Often there's an embedded complaint in the request, the, the expression of a need, or maybe there's not even an embedded complaint. There's an overt criticism of us or a grievance. They're coming in hot, naturally. And that sense of someone coming at us with an unmet need that often has a sense of critique in it, or something's coming at us that would extract from us an energy or an attention or an effort or money, or time that we don't necessarily want to give, that initially aversive experience of needs coming our way that are natural. It's natural for us to have needs. It's natural for other people to have needs. It's natural for them to express needs. It's natural for us to express needs. But just because it's natural doesn't necessarily mean that it's naturally comfortable. <laughs> so, okay, it's coming in. And our reaction to that need coming our way is going to be shaped by our history with that particular person. Mm -hmm. It's also going to be shaped by our history with other people, particularly related to that sort of need, and especially particularly related to our experiences with our parents or other caregivers when we were young and vulnerable, mm. when they had needs and wants, and I'm kind of combining needs and wants together and not trying to draw a sharp distinction between them. When their wants came at us, how did we react to that? Also, flip it around to finish here, our reactions to what happens when others bring a need to us are in part shaped by what happened when we were young and our caregivers or even peers reacted to our own expression of needs. And then we often internalize how others treat us and we begin to treat ourselves in the same way. And as we internalize it and treat ourselves the same way, we start treating other people the same way too. So if we grew up in an environment that was dismissive, which is one of the major sources of what's called avoidant insecure attachment, where we were kind of pushed away or ignored or punished for 
taking up too much space, let alone asking for anything. Well, we're going to kind of tend to take in that dismissive stance toward the expression of needs that was initially outside us and done to us, but then we internalize it because we model our parents. We take in a technical term, introject. We bring it into ourselves. And then later on in life, you know, we suddenly find ourselves doing to others what was done to us when we were little, even before we can even remember what happened. So it's very helpful to be mindful of those reactions because think about it from the other person's perspective. As we've explored for us, needs make us feel vulnerable. Mm -hmm. Expressing needs make us feel vulnerable. Yeah, There's probably some intensity, some salience. This is a significant moment for them. Mm -hmm. And if we then probably unwittingly, reactively, you know, we get reactivated, we start being dismissive or defended, or we move into denial, or we start punishing them for expressing their needs, or we deliberately misunderstand their needs or mischaracterize it in some way. If we maybe move into any form of disdain or contempt for that need or for having needs at all, any of that stuff, that's going to be a very aversive experience for that other person and really quite consequential Mm -hmm. in our relationships, much as it would be for us if the roles were reversed. So it's very important, I think, to develop the inner capabilities, the inner resources, the strengths inside, which has been very actually important for me and useful for me in my life, to become more (laughs) jujitsu-like, more (laughs) Aikido-like. When needs come at us, to not feel that we need to mount some kind of metallic defense. Mm, mm -hmm. But in fact, we can be more like bungee cords. Mm -hmm. You know, know, we, we hear it and we can remind ourselves that we have autonomy. We don't necessarily have to acquiesce. We can buy ourselves time. Uh, We don't need to agree in the moment. We can try to find out more deeply, what is it you're really asking from me? What would it look like if you got this need met, if you got what you wanted from me? You know, is how big is it actually? How different is it from our current kind of baseline? When you know those things, when you know that you can be autonomous, you can buy time, you can slow it down, you can figure it out, then you can become a lot more receptive to the needs of other people. But to be able to do that, it's really useful to be mindful initially of whatever your reactivity might be to needs coming at you in general or from key relationships in particular. And if you want to make this super real, bring it down to the last hour or day with an important person in your life at work or at home and ask yourself, to what extent have they been communicating? Often probably ineptly (laughs) or very guardedly with a lot of veiling, but to what extent can you actually discern that there's some It's like a transmission of needs coming at you from them. And what's been your response to that, including responses shaped by your own history that might lead you to be overly unnecessarily defensive or dismissive about those needs? That's a great summary of a lot of the things that affect our response, essentially, to the needs of other people. Moving into some of the things that might support you in kind of managing that response or thinking about that response. This might sound a little contradictory, but in my experience, one of the things that makes me good at meeting the needs of other people is having really healthy boundaries with them. And this can take a lot of different forms. One way that this can show up is me feeling like I have a strong sense of self that's autonomous and separate from the other person. We've talked about this a lot on the podcast, how intimacy is actually supported by a degree of autonomy. If I feel like I am not flooded and overwhelmed and vulnerable in the face of your need, it becomes much, much easier for me to meet it from like a place of strength where I feel like, oh, it's just not such a big deal for me to give you what you want in this little way because that's not going to have all these problematic cascading effects into other areas of my life. So that's one thing that can be helpful. And then alongside that, deciding that, you know, you don't have to feel responsible for every request and complaint that, say, your partner has, and you get to choose which needs you want to help a person meet. And you get to choose which ones you're like, nope, sorry, not going to help you meet that need. That's all okay. But once you really move into that kind of strong, autonomous stance, 
other people's needs get a lot less threatening because you don't feel so culpable for them. And you get to be really at choice around the ones that you support. I loved your word culpable there because it gets at, on reflection, ballpark, one of the top five interpersonal skills that in terms of what's been useful for me in this life, and that's to separate out culpability, critique, criticism, shaming, blaming, you're bad, whatever. Separate that out from substantively, operationally, what is the correction for you to put in based on your own judgment and or what would make their complaint go away? What could you do? What would it actually look like if you acted differently in the future that would address their grievance, that would address their gripe and give them no legitimate cause really to find fault with you, to separate those out and, and to realize that even if they're, so I'll give you an example, maybe they're coming at you with some kind of criticism that because you changed a lunch appointment, you were really disrespectful and you didn't understand that they really needed to talk to you on Tuesday when you changed it to the following week. And it's mean and you know you don't really love them, you don't really like them, you're bad, bad, bad. Okay, so naturally, there's a certain understandable impulse to start defending yourself and saying, well, no, you don't know how I really feel. Mm, I don't, mm-hmm. You know, I, I, don't, I don't really hate you. And, and then they say, well, you're being so defensive. You say, well, I, I'm not being defensive. Well, right there, you're being defensive about being defensive. Yeah. You know, oh my Classic. gosh, then you're off and off and off. It can really help sometimes to go, whoa, okay. This package is coming at you across the net. And in all of it, maybe there are 20 things they've said. There's like one that you think is true and you can actually implement going forward. So then you zero in on the one. You say, okay, I got it. From now on, all right, once we make a lunch date, unless I'm in the hospital, I'm going to keep that date with you. And the other person might say, well, I don't trust you. you know. And you just say, I, I know, I got it. I'm just telling you, watch what I do. Mm-hmm. And then draw your own conclusions going forward. Because what's under my control is what I do. What's under your control is what you think and what you fear. And frankly... <laughs> You know, what a Looney Tunes, <laughs> you know, you are in your own mind. Okay, but you don't say that part. You just say, <laughs> okay, I'm going to zero in. Uh, you disengage from the critique. And that's incredibly helpful sometimes, not out of contempt for their critique. I, I think there's a real place for giving others the benefit of the doubt and taking away some real looking at yourself. But when you look at yourself and you just come to the conclusion, no. I don't hate this person. No, it's not immoral. People need to change their dates. It's okay. I wouldn't freak out if they changed a lunch date with me. So honestly, I think it's kind of over the top that they're freaking out that I changed a lunch date with them. I'm just not going to take on board Mm -hmm. the kind of Mm -hmm. criticism, especially the moralizing, the moralistic dimension of that criticism. I'm just not going to take it on board. But for multiple reasons, including, frankly, getting them off my back, if only that, I'm going to make a commitment going forward that's separated from the critique. Separate critiques from commitments. Mm. That's a really useful thing to do. I think that's a great piece of advice. And we have to get toward the end here because Rick actually has to get out of here. So I'm going to be releasing him into the wild in a second. What a world. I'm on fire today. (laughs) As Forrest knows, I'm, I'm operating with very little sleep and a lot of caffeine. (laughs) Yeah. And so it's a great combination, clearly, as we've learned from this one. Um, But just to kind of like bring it home here at the end, you're never going to find somebody who doesn't want something from you. Yeah. Everyone wants something from each of us. Everyone wants something. And that's really okay. Yeah. People have needs. And because of that, they have wants. And sometimes those wants are going to be directed at you. You're not going to find a partner that doesn't want things from you. You're not going to find a parent that doesn't want things from you. So it becomes our responsibility to come to terms with the reality of the needs and wants of other people, and then to basically devise like a good strategy for interacting with those wants and needs in a healthy way. Sometimes that means drawing a lot of boundaries. Sometimes that means getting clear about our commitments instead of focusing on those critiques, as Rick said a second ago. 
And sometimes it means having a mea culpa moment where somebody comes at you with something and you go, you know what? Yeah, like I goofed on that one. And going forward, I'm going to try to do a better job of meeting your need because I know that this is really meaningful for you. And I also know that if I help you meet this need, you might feel more resourced to help me meet my needs. And in that way, it can become a really lovely and reciprocal process that two people go through with each other. That's really beautiful for us. I think about who are the people we want to be with? They're people who are reliable in the frame of whatever the relationship is, whether it's someone who's making your favorite sandwich at the deli or it's your life partner there's a, or your parent or child, there's a sense of reliability there. And there's a sense that they're emotionally available to the communication of your needs and they hold you in their mind as a being. You are a thou. Mm -hmm. Inside the frame of the relationship, one thing that led me to burst into tears there is I didn't feel like a thou Mm. with this mentor in particular that I had come through for in a variety of ways. And I just thought, who am I to you, right? I did not feel like he was really holding me in his heart. So other people have that need, we have that need. And if we meet the needs of others to the maximum reasonable extent possible, if we zero out one complaint after another, we become the kind of person that other people want to hire, they want to have as a friend, they want to invite into different situations. They want to promote. They want to mate with. You become that kind of a person. That's under your control to do, mm -hmm. which is very hopeful. And to finish, maybe, I just think that it's really useful to keep in mind something that you and I wrote about in, in the Resilient book, and you really added value to that piece of writing, where if you imagine other people with little thought balloons over their head with questions, the questions of the people around you. Will you listen to me? Will you be nice to me? Are you going to hurt me? Will you pay me back? Am I your friend? Do you think well of me? Right? These are these very poignant, very sweet. They could feel really quite young, but they're very fundamental, common humanity. They're natural to us. Questions in the minds of others as they interact with us and as they approach us, maybe for the first time. Also, in much the same way, we too have those little thought balloons above our heads. And you might ask yourself as you move through your own day, what are those little questions you have of other people that relate to your needs and wants? And what might be a little wiser, a little more effective in how you respond to those questions inside your own mind and go about meeting those needs directly perhaps, or as well and as well, perhaps expressing them more openly and authentically with less defensiveness and greater vulnerability and realness with other people. Great. Yeah, I think that's a lovely reflection to kind of close today's episode with. So thanks for doing this with me today. That was great. Thank you, Forrest. So today we talked about having needs and particularly how we can meet those needs over time. We focused on three big topics. The first was accepting the reality of our needs. The second was ways to identify the needs that might be important to us. And then finally, we closed with a brief conversation on coming to terms with the needs of other people. Rick began by explaining our three primary needs, safety, satisfaction, and connection, which relate to our evolutionary heritage. Whether we're talking about lizards or humans, those three needs are primary. And one of the reasons that the pandemic has been so challenging is that it's really challenged each of those three needs. Then we moved into talking about admitting our needs. For a lot of people, it can be embarrassing or at the very least really vulnerable to admit that we have needs at all. So I asked Rick to share a story of a time where he had to confess his needs and the ways in which that was really very uncomfortable for him. One of the things that provides a kind of foundation for American culture is this myth of rugged individualism. The idea that we really don't have needs and we can all just get along by ourselves. And that being resilient is about either not having needs or about not admitting our needs at the very least and just kind of keeping a stiff upper lip. But psychologically, that's kind of the opposite of true. The truth is that we become more resilient by meeting our needs effectively. And the first step to meeting our needs is admitting that they're there. We really highlighted the importance of vulnerability and self-acceptance, how we shouldn't be divorced from our true nature, 
and how we can come to peace with our vulnerabilities, which actually, in a way, allows us to be stronger over time. We then spent quite a bit of time talking about how we can identify the different needs that we have. While we all have those three big core needs, for each individual person, specific needs are going to vary. What might be really important for one person could be not that significant for another one. As I shared, two of my big needs are around self-actualization, feeling like I'm doing enough out in the world, and connection, feeling like people really well like me. And when I got to a point in my life where I was able to admit that those were needs of mine, wow, I became a lot more effective in meeting both of them. Just as we have needs, other people have needs too. And sure, for most of those people, being really honest and direct about it, meeting their needs might not be that important to us. A stranger on the street, a distant acquaintance, someone you have kind of a peripheral relationship with, Wow, if that person really imposes on you or really expresses a lot of needs, you're not going to feel culpable for them, nor should you. But for some other people, friends, particularly close friends, family members, and romantic partners, it can be both fulfilling and, you know, maybe even good Samaritanly moral on some level to help them meet their needs. One of the things that can really support us in doing this is having healthy boundaries. The more that we feel like we're not going to be overwhelmed by the needs of other people or that we're really culpable for those needs, the easier it actually gets to meet the needs that we feel like we can contribute to, particularly when that contribution feels, you know, healthy for us. Then Rick closed with a kind of reflection on becoming the sort of person that other people want to be around, which can help us meet our needs for connection while also fulfilling the needs of other people. So that's it for today. If you've been enjoying the podcast, I would really appreciate it if you would subscribe to it through the platform of your choice and maybe even leave a rating and a positive review. It really does help us out. Also, as Rick mentioned a few times throughout the conversation, we have a Patreon page. And for Patreon, I put together detailed notes for each episode. So if you're interested in learning more about these topics or maybe diving into the research that goes into each episode, you can check us out on Patreon. It's patreon.com slash beingwellpodcast. If you enjoy the kind of content that the podcast focuses on, you might also enjoy my new YouTube channel. It's youtube.com slash C slash Forrest Hansen. And I'll also include a link to it in the description of today's podcast. I've been creating videos focused on some of the topics that we explore on the podcast. And if you're more of a visual learner rather than an auditory one, you might find it really interesting. That's all for today. Until next time, thanks for listening.